Turundusraadio. Hello and welcome to our marketing radio talk show number 258. I'm Anu Malnaric from the Institute of Marketing in Estonia and I have a guest here uh, in our studio today who is uh, Robin Gurney representing neuromarketingtips.eu. Hello. Hello, Anu. And today, uh, to introduce the topic, we have been talking about neuromarketing really for several times and most of our listeners you have followed maybe even up to 10 different shows in the topic. But today we are going to take a bit wider approach and uh, talk both about uh, the system and the universe of neuromarketing and neuroscience in general, or neuroscience connected to marketing, I would like to call it like that. Um, And then also to listen about some very concrete tips and suggestions what would be useful for any kind of marketer. So let's start from the beginning. Robin, what is uh, the main difference between the traditional market research and neuromarketing research? Well, neuromarketing research is like the new kid on the block and it's being very disruptive, um, which is long overdue in my opinion. Uh, Traditional research is is what it says, it's traditional. And modern marketing world uh, with technology needs uh, deeper and more innovative ways to to better understand consumer behavior. Um, We are able now to measure human data, to interpret human insights, and to enhance the human interaction with that data. It's neuromarketing research is cutting edge. It uses the best from what we call consumer neuroscience and biometric technology so that we can really understand the emotional behavior that underpins uh, decision making. Uh, Traditional market research generally relies on self-reporting methodologies and these are full of uh, bias actually. So if you imagine that you're standing in a supermarket with a researcher standing beside you with his clipboard in hand and you pick up a product and they ask, why did you choose that product? There's a number of issues with that question. The first one is that you may be influenced by the interviewer and the environment that you're in or the way that the questions are asked. And you may have an unconscious desire to be a good interviewee and give the answers that the interviewer wants to hear. There's also what we call, that's a response bias. And then there's what we call a self-assessment bias. I mean, what does happy mean? Um, You know, I'm happy with it, I like it. You know, emotions are very difficult to identify and express verbally. Your happy is not the same as my happy. Your great is not the same as my great. And so that leaves the responses open to interpretation. And the third one is the, what we call the researcher bias, that traditional market research is, is about the interpretation of the researcher's information and, and theoretical models. They're not really scientific. Um, and this means that the information received is also open to interpretation and it can't often be replicated or controlled. So neuromarketing research is offering science-based methodologies that are less uh, susceptible to bias. Can you tell me, based on your opinion and all the hundreds and hundreds of articles you have read, how big is the difference 
of understanding based on neuro-research neuro and based on the traditional methods. Can we say today that the traditional methods do not work at all? Look only on the neuroscience. Or do you say that, okay, maybe we see 50% difference? What is kind of based on your experience, how big is the difference of understanding today? Um, I'm not sure that difference is the right way to look at it. I think that it's it's sort of probabilities of, of how secure the findings are. That, that There's no way that traditional research is dead or will be dead or should be dead. Uh, some of it's very, very valid and there are some excellent traditional research organizations that that minimize the biases and, and do things in a very professional manner. I think that the what the neuromarketing research offers is a certain degree of validity to okay. what the traditional researchers find. If you can say with confidence that yes, this person likes it, um, because we're seeing this part of the brain light up or their heart rate move in this way or the amount of sweat on their skin increasing this amount, then we know that, that what they've said is actually what they truly feel and that they're not you know, lying or it's being misinterpreted in some way. So it gives some security and I think that traditional research companies should be looking to... Um, not necessarily offer these services alongside, but certainly pay attention to the, the findings that are coming out, you know, applying the knowledge from neuroscience to their own work. Excellent. Can you bring some examples? You have collected a lot of tips into your neuromarketing tips.eu database. Bring some examples what are fascinating for you or good mm -hmm. to know what is inside that. Well, I'll, I'll give you some very recent ones, but I'll give you one of my favorites first, okay, which is, good. <laughs> is, is actually a, a few years old, and it's a, to do with neuropricing. Uh, neuropricing for me is one of the really interesting areas because if you can get your pricing right of your product, then not only will you sell more, but you, you could uh, increase your profit margins by, by increasing your price. So if we take the, the, the big one that I see every day on every website and, and supermarkets and restaurants getting it wrong um, is that we have what's when when you see uh, prices uh, top to bottom or left to right we always read top to bottom or left to right unless you're in certain asian countries in which case it might be the other way around but so when you price is painful no one likes price it's it's the hard part of buying something is the pain of getting rid of the money and seeing how much it costs that's that's a real pain so when you have a wine menu for example in a restaurant you should put the most expensive bottle of wine first it should be at the top not the house wine by glass but the bottle of 1956 champagne at 400 euros that should be first because as you drop down the pain reduces and you may, may arrive at, say, a 50-euro bottle and think that that's quite reasonable and, and buy that. If you start with the house wine at 10 euros and you work up, the pain is increasing all the time. And so you may only get to the 30-euro bottle because that's as much pain as you can take. So, And it's the same when you're presenting, say, in an e-commerce shop. You have three results or five results on the screen 
present the most expensive one first and then move to the cheaper ones. Don't present the cheapest one first, unless they've filtered that, of course. And so this, um, you know, is, is, is a very easy thing. And, and I often see this with the, the software that you can buy, you know, the bronze, silver, gold kind of thing. Um, but they put the bronze one on the left, the silver one in the middle and the gold one on the right. Do it the other way round, and the result is a higher average sales price. You will sell more of the middle one, basically. Not more the low end one. No. Yeah. The, 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 the average sale price will go up. You will sell more of the middle one. So um, that's, that's the evidence that I've seen. And this, is, this has been borne out lots of times in, in lots of places. And, and I still see people not following that i guess because they're just not aware of it and it seems natural to them to put the cheapest and the middle and the high that seems natural but actually it's wrong very good it's a very good example so i i hope uh, everyone is going now to look at their home page yeah, and yeah. and change the order most expensive pain first <laughs> and, and then go down or left to right so I'll, i'll give you some other examples i'll run through just stop me when you've had enough really because okay, yeah. i've got plenty of them <laughs> or when you have finished all your <laughs> okay um <laughs> I saw recently uh, uh, an Estonian craft beer uh, that was doing something really well. I don't know whether they know anything about neuromarketing or not, but they've done something particularly well. Um, and that is about putting brand stories on packaging. Um, if you put a little story, a human story, uh, on the packaging, then this has been proved to increase um, the perception and intention to buy. Um, people will engage with it more and they are more likely to buy it if there's a little story on there. So for any FMCG packaging people, try to humanize and add a story to your packaging um, and that will, will help. May I just ask, do you mean, if you talk about craft beer, do you mean the label when they should put the story or should there be some kind of outer box? No, the label is the fine. Story? Well, I mean, it could be on the outer box, but no, on the, uh, on the label itself. You know, okay. that this this beer was, you know, made by John in the forest and something or other, you know. Okay. So here's here's another interesting one, which is about um, if you're selling to men, um, men are a bit peacockish, uh, meaning that they like to show their status off to other men. It's a sort of competitive thing. So if you're selling a, a car, for example, or a high-end product, um then it's better to have a, a sort of tall, muscular guy selling to the man. The reason for this is that the, the male consumer will want to show his status. He will see it as a sort of uh, a little bit competition unconsciously, and so he will want to throw more money and will buy a higher-end version than he probably normally would because it sort of shows that he's... Uh, able, his status is high uh, because he has the money. Um, so, um, you know, if you have a car showroom and a guy walks in, you send out the muscle man um, because he's more likely to order the one with the electronic, uh, you know, windscreen wipers or whatever it is, or the extra video or something to show off in some way. Does it and that, mean that comes out of Denmark uh, Aarhus University research? Does it mean that the very, very common picture when you go to the car fairs or boat fairs? 
two places, very, very masculine, usually talking to two men. But what you see is there is a beautiful car and there is a beautiful lady with long legs and short shirt. That's a, that's a different... Should the ladies be replaced? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> this is a different kind of thing. This is about irrational decision-making that uh, the, in, the, in the presence of sexiness, shall we call it, um, that men are more likely to make irrational decisions oh, okay. to, um, to do things. So have the sexy lady on the car by all means, but the guy who's taking the order should be a muscle man. Okay, good. Um, talking about cars, uh, Daimler, for example, uh, car manufacturer, they redesigned their headlights after some uh, MRI studies um, to be more like human uh, faces or eyes. Um, they found that people were, mm, in, the, in the reward center of the brain, was triggered in the same way as like having chocolate, um, that when they saw a face, people liked looking at faces, um, that when they saw the headlamps uh, shaped more like eyes, that they had a much more positive reaction to the car, and as a result, they redesigned the car. Wow. So, uh, moving on to another one. Um, this is uh, why do so many online shoppers uh, convert to customers? This is, you know, one of the big problems that we see in e-commerce is they get a lot of people to the door. They're looking around the shop and they don't check out. And uh, this is a, a worry for a lot of uh, e-commerce operations. And and the thing that one of the the things that's going on here is that trust is an essential part of forming a decision to purchase. And we know that, and that's been, that's been proven many times. And purchasing from a company online that you haven't bought from before is seen as a risk. So um, what, what um, a report that came out in Harvard uh, Business Review this year uh, suggested that uh, these simple changes like page layouts and fonts and images and colors are actually much more important than we thought they were. Um, so using the right fonts and the right colors and layouts is actually not, you know, just a cosmetic thing. This is increasing trust. And I, I studied a long time ago, like 15 years ago, a guy called BJ Fogg at Stanford and studied his work, which was about website credibility. And um, this is sort of echoing his, his sort of original ideas, but it's putting some science uh, behind it. Um, so it really is worth um, investigating the, the, the effects on the brain of certain colors and fonts and, uh, and layouts. And we have uh, lots of tips related to that because I think that's a really important area. Um, I'm going to attempt a bit of Estonian in the next tip. Okay. Um, this, this is a... Uh, it's a little bit old, but it, it comes up every now and then, uh, a, a sort of retested one. The, the brain is wired to predict what comes next. It's something that's sort of in us that we, when there's a situation, we sort of predict what's going to happen uh, next and, and prepare ourselves for it. And so if I say the cow jumps over the, you think, moon, right? The cow jumps over the moon. Or it's like a needle in a haystack. haystack. You, you predict it. So if I say in Estonian... Uh, Homik on uhtust tarkem ei maitsvam. And this could be something more memorable. Okay. Um, and it's about 
uh, waking up the brain with unexpected words. So Volkswagen did it quite famously with think small with their car. People are used to the expression think big, but they said think small. And people, oh, that's, you know, got my attention. So when I say homikon uchtus meitzvam, this could be something associated with a breakfast cereal or a jam or bread. So this could be more a uh, way of snapping attention, basically. Um, here's one for TV advertisers. And, and uh, I, I guess some people in media agencies might hate me for this one. Um, don't buy the first slot in the commercial break. Um, it's generally more expensive. And the statistics do show that the recall rate and the attention of the ad, the first ad in the commercial break, is the greatest, is the highest, and that's quite often why it is uh, more expensive. Unfortunately, though, the emotional reaction is the most negative. So even though you're getting the most attention for your ad, the actual emotional reaction is negative. And why is that? It's because you are interrupting the movie. You're interrupting. And I don't want you to interrupt. It's called the halo effect. It's a cognitive bias, basically, that we associate things uh, with other things that have happened, sometimes not rationally. So it's like you transfer your feelings um, about the interruption in the movie to the brand. And uh, so you see that brand as an annoying brand because they just interrupted your movie. So I'm not saying that it's better to be second or third or fourth or fifth in the, in the ad break, but uh, don't be first. Um, I don't know if there's any been tests done on uh, the last one, whether that's the best one or not, but I guess a lot of people are having a cup of coffee in the break anyway. Is This is the strategy what the, what the channels try to also use, that they put the f- first their own adverts about uh, coming movies and so on, the first interruption part, and then comes the commercial part. Would this be a solution that, that you're bridging it somehow differently? Perhaps, perhaps, yeah. Maybe that's, that's why they do it. Maybe they're aware of this. Good. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I don't doubt that, you know, that, that uh, the... I just wonder, it's certainly not the case on every channel. And um, the thing is, so long as the, the, the media planners are aware of this, Um, and the, the buyers, uh, the brands are aware of this, then that can be reflected. Um, but if there is no introduction, pre-roll, if you like, to the advertising, um, then why should the first ad be more expensive if it's creating the wrong emotion? I mean, Absolutely. you want the emotion, right? The, the attention isn't enough if the emotion is wrong. Very good. Um, there's some recent eye-tracking research by Nielsen. Uh, that showed that uh, quite a large sample of people that showed that 80% of the time viewing is spent on the left-hand side of the web page. So your important, um, shall we say, messages should be on the left of the page. Uh, only 20% spent on the right. And I think for those who are familiar already with uh, neuromarketing basics, you know that w- we respond better to visual stimuli. So images, you know, illustrative images or powerful images on the left-hand side. Um, uh, I talk about one mistake uh, that that occasionally gets made, uh, usually in non-profits, um, but can also happen 
with other other kinds of organizations could could happen with media as well and that is about if you want people to support what you're doing your cause um, or your you know your objective don't complain about the lack of support um, people like are, are, are a bit like sheep they like to undertake an action that they think others are undertaking so don't say we don't get enough money only you know 100 people support us we need more help it's better to say a hundred people are supporting us um, join them you know be one of them don't complain about the lack of support pay attention to the support that you do have so you know join you know the Guardian for example uh, asks people to donate money um, you know because you can donate to support the, the, new, the online newspaper and um, the, what they should be doing is, is saying, you know, join thousands of people or milli X million who, who give one, one dollar a week. Everyone you know. is donating. Why yeah, because then you, you feel like you're part of the club, you know, and, and that, that's what you want to be. You want to be part of a herd, you know. Um, this, is, this is how we are. Um, I, I see that you are kind of pouring the tips from all over the world. Uh, tell me a bit about the background. What's the background of the tips and how do you get them? The background of the tips and how do we get them? Well, that, that's really hard work, actually. <laughs> um, Seems easy to see the result. The, but the, we have a team of researchers um, in Estonia, Belarus, India, Philippines. Um, we read an enormous amount of material books, white papers, blogs. We have conversations with academics, with uh, neuromarketing companies, uh, people who are working in the field, basically. And uh, we analyze the, this, a lot of scientific material and we try to pull out from the science-based material, you know, tips and insights that we can express in business language. You know, I, I think a lot of marketing people would love to Uh, use some of the findings that are coming from the neuroscientists but they're a little bit uh, unfamiliar with the vocabulary and the terms and the, 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 the numbers and, and, and different parts of the brain and stuff like that and it's all a bit unfamiliar and it's a lot of learning involved and so what we're trying to do is to, to express these things in business language um, and so there's a lot of reading, a lot of editing a lot of double checking um, for for these tips and uh, that's that's really what it is very Today, time consuming how uh, you said that there are hundreds of tips and and, and research articles coming mm. in how does the neuromarketing research field look like where are uh, where are the hot spots really mm -hmm. what does the most maybe even exciting or innovative um, innovations come out that's hard to pin it to geography you know it's um you know there's some universities doing very interesting work and other you know some agencies in some countries doing interesting work but if you if you want to sort of look at it in geographical terms then originally it was you know usa uh, leading the way and uh, if you go back 10 years to the beginning of the neuromarketing industry if we can call it that um the usa was very very dominant they're sort of 
declining in their dominance now and Europe is definitely rising. We've got Spain, UK, Italy, Netherlands, for example. Um, they're, they're very strong. The Latin American market is probably the fastest growing along with Asia. Um, it's predicted that China will eventually lead the way. Um, uh, so, you know, Asia is growing. South America is growing very fast, but the, there are uh, murmurs of regulatory okay. issues uh, over there uh, to do with how, how people's brains are measured and, you know, the ethical, ethical boundaries of that. So, but if we talk about the size of the market, you know, it's the Neuromarketing uh, Science and Business Association that we're a member of estimates that the, the whole industry is about $2 billion at the moment. Um, research from uh, a reputable source suggests that the technology, just the hard technology, the equipment, um, will be market will be worth about two billion by 2025. Okay. That's not the services surrounding it. We've got about a hundred pure neuromarketing service companies in the world, a little bit over a hundred, and there are at least a hundred companies offering dedicated neuromarketing courses, universities. Um, if we take an example of one leading company called SalesBrain, um, they have uh, they claim six hundred clients. Um, and that they've trained 120,000 uh, people in 20 different countries. Wow. And that's, that's from one of the leading agencies. And there are like maybe 10 big players. So we're talking quite big numbers. It's not, um, you know, it's not small, small beer really anymore. Which probably, you know, leads us on to this, uh, you know, what's the, you know, what's the, What's the hot areas and, uh, you know, and, and how it's, Let's say how the it's panning hot, out yeah, or the, yeah, yeah, yeah. where it's going, you know. And uh, if, we, if we look at that, I think that one of the, the if, we, if we talk about the sort of the hot topics that, that inside the industry of where it's going, I mean, that, there's no doubt inside the industry that this is, this is a growing area and that this is going to be, um, very, very big in the market research world. The, the GRIT report that's coming out pays attention to this now, and in the next, uh, the next GRIT report, there will be um, a, a lot of attention paid to what they now call validated non-conscious research techniques, which include you know, uh, applied neuroscience and biometrics and, and, and such like. But the hot topics that are coming is the uh, AI and machine learning. As we... Uh, are able to um, manage much more data, big data, then we will be able to uh, predict more uh, from the data, um, more event estimations and uh, semantic analysis and other kinds of activities that are a little bit too difficult to do on at scale now. We've got augmented reality and virtual reality. If you want to see how people emotionally react to a new shopping display, um, then we could do it in virtual reality with headsets and emotionally uh, measure how people would respond without actually building the shop. So we could use virtual reality to, to make products and then immerse people in those virtual realities to see how they react emotionally and then decide whether it's worth building a prototype of that or not. Um, so that's another area which is quite exciting. Um, these, um, 
hardware cost reduction. You know, at the moment, some of the testing equipment is quite expensive. Uh, that's why eye tracking is so popular because it's uh, one of the cheaper ways to, to get some measurements. But it's all coming down. All of the hardware involved is reducing uh, in price. Um, and so the scale of samples and more people measuring uh, will mean more data, more, more evidence. There are new technologies in development. You know, the brain is a complex beast. And um, so they are looking at new ways of uh, measuring emotional response uh, beyond the tools that are currently available. So new tools will be available. Um, we've got the transparency and ethics issue. You know, eventually um, this, this neuroscience-based uh, research is going to hit the mainstream. There's going to be some negative media somewhere about manipulation and uh, that kind of thing and people getting scared of, uh, scared of that you know, propaganda, as you, you <laughs> mentioned, yeah. you know. So uh, this, this regulatory side of things with the transparency and ethics, it's all voluntary code at the moment. You know, we're, we're a member of the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, as I said, and there is a voluntary code there, um, but it's not anything from the outside, you know. There's no one sort of imposing anything, and I think that that will need to be looked at at some point, and that's, that's a discussion that's going on. You can even Google neuroethics, and there's a whole big area there. One of the really futuristic things will be the sort of embedded biometrics. Um, what we mean by that is, like, uh, at the moment, there are sort of wearable technologies that, that um, measure heart rate or, you know, skin sweat and things like this. Well, how can they tie into marketing? So, for example, if we see that you're jogging and you hit that happy spot, would that be an appropriate moment to try and sell you an ice cream? Um, and what about embedding uh, actually in the body? Um, could we, you know, in medical uh, monitoring, there are embedded technologies now that, that tell you about the, the, the health of the patient. Well, how about that they tell you when you're in the mood for something? Um, and the area that we're sort of focused in, which is another growth area, is what we call the applied neuroscience, what I call applied neuroscience. And that's working where you don't have the equipment or the skills to, you don't have the equipment to get the data, you don't have the skills to interpret the data. So what do you do? Well, you read stuff. Um, and that's what we're doing. You know, we, we are looking at what the experts are finding and then using that to advise, uh, inform our marketing, inspire our marketing, improve our marketing. Uh, so we're not actually doing all the testing. Um, we're not experts in that way. But what we're trying to do is, you know, climb on the shoulders of giants, if you like, and, and learn from the experts. And I think in, in places like Estonia, where there is not probably sufficient market size to have a great, big, wonderful, cost-effective neuro-testing lab, um, what are the options, you know? You can bring, go to maybe Finland or to uh, Poland, for example, uh, where there are, some, there, there are some labs, you could do that. But for a lot of people, that's out of their reach economically. And uh, so having access to sort of tips and insights and then, you know, testing with those uh, is, is a, you know, a reasonable way forward. Um, you know, you can't ignore the area. So, you know, that's, that's an option. And we, we try to fill that gap. So, 
just to conclude, how can marketeers access the information what you have? Well, we have a, a free version at uh, neuromarketingtips.eu. We're in beta right now. Uh, so you can uh, go, go there and uh, get access to 150 uh, tips. Uh, later, we'll have a premium version, uh, which will be a thousand tips plus, and then we're adding each month. Um, and you can buy like a monthly or quarterly or annual access to that uh, sort of ongoing, uh, ongoing resource. But uh, I mean, you can just Google it. You don't you don't have to use ours. You know, I mean, you you, you can do what what we do really. Um, but you'll need a lot of time on your hands in order to read lengthy materials to find the golden nuggets that we pulled out you know it's not um some of them are just laying there they're easy to find but some of the really good stuff isn't really googleable you know it's behind paywalls um it's, it's sitting on university servers and things like this and we're privileged to be able to access some of those things so you i think that it you know take advantage of the freebie you know why not you know go and have a look and Take some, take some of the tips and insights and try and use them. And if you make some money or save some money by using those tips, then maybe it's worth investing in, uh, you know, uh, in, in going deeper. And please don't forget to tell us that you used it, that you tried the tips and you made some money. Yeah, that would be good. Share the knowledge with us so we can be happy for you and, uh, and uh, uh, inspire all the other people also to take uh, a really maximum out of the new knowledge uh, for as uh, um, affordable both price-wise and time-wise uh, for you uh, in a busy marketing life. So thank you, Robin, for being here. Uh, and um, uh, I am asking you to to look at the uh, neuromarketingtips.eu and also welcome back and listen to our next shows. I just want to say one more tip before I go. Sorry. Okay, you just can. Just the last one. <laughs> Allowed. Um, this is like if your customers are looking for large items, um, then make your products in more saturated colors, more intense colors, because... Intense colors increase um, the, mm, they make the products appear larger and they command more attention and they make the surroundings appear smaller. So if you want something to look large, if you're selling the large version, then use intense colors. If you want to sell a small version, go the opposite way. Very good. So just color intensity, the um, saturation of the color. Thank you a lot. And I do promise we will come back to these topics uh, sooner or later. So um, stay in our channel. Thank you. Sulle meeldis Turudus Radio. Teili endale meelde tuletus järgmiste saadete kohta Marketingi Instituudi kodulehelt.